0: Welcome to Grace Walk Radio, where Jesus is enough, or as they say in Burmese, "Ye Shushai Lone Laut Pesai. Not sure if I said that right, but shout out to the Burmese today. <laughs> I can't help with, uh, when I think of the Burmese, I'm thinking of Adoniram Judson, who the great missionary to Burma, uh, an inspiration to all who know the history of the missions movement and his life and faith, but Anyway, welcome to Grace Walk Radio. I'm your host, Derek Lewandowski and I'm here with my co-host, Caleb Berg. Howdy. Uh, Caleb, you blew up Twitter yesterday with uh, <laughs> Liverpool yeah. celebrations.
1: Well, it, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, they, they actually clinched the title 28 days ago. So why am I blowing it up now? Well, at the end of uh, yesterday's match versus Chelsea... Um, a match which Liverpool won five three. Uh, it's the last home match of the season, and so it was the the game where they were going to actually be crowned champions. Even their their faith became sight, <laughs> to use <laughs> theological language. Um, so for twenty seven days, we were champions in name. Yesterday they received the trophy.
0: Was there any uh, rioting and looting in the streets like that? You know, normally be in a championship city, so um, there
1: were there were quite a few fans that were out and about, but the uh, Liverpool police had it mostly contained. Um, it wasn't quite as bad as uh, when we actually won the championship twenty eight days ago, and there was thousands of people in the streets. This was only a handful, so. Yeah, forget social distancing. When your team wins a it's title, been, it's been thirty You years. go to the streets. It's it's been thirty years. <laughs> right. And honestly, if if you understand anything about Liverpool history, it to use a local analogy, it would be like the Bills winning the Super Bowl because there's been a lot of heartache and a lot of yeah almost theirs. Yeah, um, so much so that you know, I mean, it, it last. I mean, last season it went down to the very last game of the season. They actually had the lead, and then Manchester City took over. So on all place. the more
0: reason to have an emotional yeah. reaction.
1: So you know it, it's justified okay. and and having that emotional emotional response. And it was it was pretty cool to watch the uh, the celebration. There wasn't any fans in the stadium, but they got to have big pyrotechnic display and fireworks and lights and and all that good stuff and lift the trophy. And yeah, it was pretty cool.
0: All right, Caleb, am I going to have to put you on the five second clock? You're going to have to put
1: me back on the five second clock. <laughs> okay.
0: Um. So Liverpool won. Yep. Jesus is Lord. Uh, God is sovereign. And Which today, even better. <laughs> today we are here to begin a series on reform theology. Dun 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 dun. dun. Um. Yeah, we just want to take the next few podcasts and just go through kind of the the pinnacle doctrines of reform theology and help provide an explanation for that. And honestly, we primarily want to do that because these truths are in Scripture, number one, uh, because they, are, uh, they have been called the doctrines of grace. Mm-hmm. That's a, a synonym phrase for Reformed theology. So for Grace Walk Radio, let's talk about the doctrines of grace. But finally, Caleb, i got to say, these truths have revolutionized my life. They, they've provided such uh, rest yeah. to my heart. Uh, they provided the highest uh, inspiration for worship, um, you know wrestling with these doctrines it's hard but good and it's really for me uh produced uh a deeper worship and uh i guess to borrow um to borrow matt chandler's term uh it, it's been a warm blanket
1: yeah yeah likewise for me um so not that this is where we're going but i'll give you the 30 second synopsis i was uh i guess uh The doctrines of grace became prevalent to my life a few years ago, and I was in the midst of mourning the loss of um, our first child. Um, Olive is actually the second pregnancy. We miscarried the first. Um, And so we were in mourning and and just devastated, and um, it was at that time that God began to reveal the doctrines of grace to me. And it was exactly that it was like a warm blanket, and I don't think it was just because I was suffering and struggling. I think it was that was that was the way God used that in my life to reveal um these things but um i I just was in a time of my life where I was just i had this renewed hunger and thirst for the Word of God, and so it just became like reading the word was it was just like Hi, like someone had already highlighted my Bible almost, and these things were just jumping off the page at me, mm-hmm. and I was seeing them in Scripture, and it was that comfort and and honestly, like just just strength in the midst of suffering and in the midst of trial. And so for me, I I actually think very fondly upon these doctrines. I know for many, um, and maybe that will be seen more as we discuss them. But for many, they struggle with these doctrines. Mm-hmm. They they somehow see um, God as mean through them, from, from my perspective of someone who has embraced these doctrines, I see nothing but beauty and grace um, and just, I, I don't know, to me I see the, let's steal a Donald Trumpism, the, the hugeness of God, he's, he's huge.
0: Well, <laughs> I, don't know how the, I don't know how the theologian Donald Trump ended up in this conversation. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, well, another phrase that's probably a little more uh, palatable uh, to describe this theological system is uh, big God theology, yep. and again, like this is not like um, inventing you know our own theology or the reform movement did not invent their own theology. Um, this is not extra biblical it's just a system of theological understanding that, in the minds of those who hold to it, believe, best describe. Yeah. This, this scriptural teaching on sin and grace, and uh, and how that plays out uh, in creation. Um, so it, it's just it's just a theological system that really summarizes the whole of scripture. That, that yeah. that's that's the goal of it. But it's a it's a big God. A, it, there's yeah. a bigger God in this theology, and a smaller me. And similar yeah. to you, I um I came to this through suffering. You know, I. I've shared my testimony before, but, you know, going through severe depression back in the early 2000s and struggling terribly with anxiety disorder um, and putting my nose in the scriptures, um, I really came to a a deeper understanding of the gospel and the, the nature of the gospel, and in particular, that I am helpless Um, that I am totally depraved. Nobody needed to convince me of that. When the scripture (laughs) said it, I quickly agreed with it because that was also my experience. And it was only grace that brought me through that time and kept me and preserved me. It was grace that was at the end of my rope and the limits that I had. And so it was my own suffering that led me on this theological journey to discover what I now know to be Reformed theology. So um, before we get into that too deeply, maybe Caleb, you could just give a background on that. Uh, What's the history uh, of this? We say Reformed theology. What does that mean when we say Reformed uh, theology?
1: Well, number one, um, yeah, I think it's helpful to have a clarification of terms in that, you know, like Reformed theology, uh, for those who maybe are a little bit less familiar with the the doctrinal things – Reformed theology is not synonymous necessarily with what we call TULIP, which is uh, the five points of Calvinism, which we will dive into through the course of this conversation. Um, Reformed theology is actually an expression uh, that encompasses the whole theological framework of it. So it's more than just the atonement Mm -hmm. and and the doctrines of sin and things like that. Um, It is an entire theological uh, framework. Um, Maybe that's too... Academic of a terminology, but it's 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 how we view God through the Bible. Um, so you're probably familiar with the Protestant Reformation, at least enough to recognize names like Martin Luther and John Calvin. Well, these are the doctrines that they taught, and that they, as they had Scripture revealed to them, justification by faith alone, um, and those those doctrines that we see during that time that became. Reformed theology. So, it relies heavily on uh, the works of Martin Luther and John Calvin um, as well. Um, going back further than that, it re- you know, the works of John, uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther rely heavily on Scripture. So, the writings of the they're, Apostles they're and, writing of and the, the prophets. prophets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, let's not take it away as like it was some new thing. Uh, the Reformation was reforming the Church um, back to its moorings theologically. Mm -hmm. So, it was coming back to um, the truth of the gospel, not inventing a new gospel, which you could argue is what the Roman Catholic Church had done. It through time had strayed away from the gospel that's in Scripture, and so, the Reformation was a bringing back to Scripture. So, when we talk about Reformed theology, it's the theological system that comes from the work of these Reformers. Um, Now, specifically – Um, We will talk about TULIP a good bit, which is an acronym uh, for the five points of Calvinism. And so we'll give a little bit of background on that right now. Uh, John Calvin was a reformer. Uh, He was a a Frenchman who actually ministered in the town of Geneva, uh, Switzerland. And he is most famously known for his work, The Institutes of Christian Religion. Uh, And so he, he wrote... A ton of material. The, the the Institutes is not a small book. It's not a short book. It is lengthy. And it is pretty intense. I've been trying to read it for the last three years, so it's not a quick read. Um, but it is also really good. Um, he also wrote many commentaries. It's the kind like of thing that. where you read a page and then you stop and yeah. go back and make sure you, you do. Grasp. You really do. Yeah. Um, now, where the five points of Calvinism come from are actually not from Calvin. What ended up happening is Calvin is dead at this time. He died in 1564, and Reformed theology took off all over the known world at that time. You have the Dutch Reformation, the English Reformation, the Scottish Reformation, all of these reformations taking place in these countries. Well, uh in Holland, or in Netherlands, as it's known as now, um, the Dutch people, uh there were there was a massive movement and very educated movement, but there was a guy by the name of uh Jacobus Arminius who was uh a Dutch theologian and and he actually was considered to be uh, Dutch Reformed. But he began to see some discrepancies in the Calvinist teaching, uh, the Calvinist doctrines. And um, in the early 1600s, a controversy arose. Now, he dies in 1609, and his followers, Arminians, um, rose up and and had these things, um, a a five doctrinal statement position paper, if you will, that was called the Remonstrance. Um, And they brought that to a synod. Synod, however you want to pronounce that, I think it's synod. Synod, yeah. Um, to uh, to basically um, express their disagreements in these key areas with the Calvinists. Um, these were the followers of John Calvin. So at some point um, in late 1618 uh, to 1619, um, early 1619, they met at the Synod of Dort, uh, where the Calvinists responded to these five disputed points. And their answers became known as the canon, the canons of Dort, um, as more commonly expressed, the five points of Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, they were just
0: refuting, yeah, uh, what they believed to be false teachings from Jacob, Jacobus
1: Arminius, yeah, and his followers. Yeah. Um, so um, the five points were not asserted by the Calvinists to be. Uh, the crux of their theology, they were just responses. But somehow over time, as, as it often does, um, people began to, um, number one, I guess, um, view all of Reformed theology as the five points of Calvinism, mm-hmm. and that's just not true, um, I think, while I find it very helpful to think about things like uh, what what the definitions of tulip means, um, it's, it's just a summary of uh, a, a rebuttal. It's mm-hmm. not the full picture. And so, oftentimes Calvinists get maligned as, oh, you guys are just them once saved, always saved people. And I had that opinion. I had that view. But when I... was seeing these things in scripture and studying history, which I might add is very helpful when you're looking at these things to have Mm -hmm. a full picture of what it was actually taking place. I began to see it was much more than just these five points. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that was the disagreement. That was where these things arose. Obviously, um, TULIP is an, is an English acronym. It probably doesn't hold true in Dutch. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know what their summary of it is or what their acronym of it, but that is the English acronym. Um but I, I think it's important to point out that though these five points were a rebuttal, they are very helpful, and they are at the heart of how we understand God, sin, and grace, atonement, salvation, and all these things. They're, they're all touched by these these realities, these expressions. Um, and so for, for our listeners, I want to say that it's important to really wrap our minds around these things.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's caricatures of Calvinism that are simply not true, that I held – Myself to those caricatures, yeah. which gave me an aversion, and you know, I, I avoided at first. You know these these doctrines and these uh, just this the academic research and education of those things in my scriptural study because uh, I was raised to think that those were um, you know that those that that was the wrong way of looking at scripture, and so th- the caricatures were what I would now call, uh, determinism or fatalism. In other words, because of predestination, uh, why pray? Why preach? Why do do? it pops the tires of, of, uh, obedience and, and of mission and, and action. And on the contrary, you know, as, as you, uh, listen to us talk about these things, you'll hear that they, they actually motivate action. They motivate worship, um, and they give confidence to the worker in Christ that you're not beating the air. Your work is not in vain, um, you know, when Paul went to Corinth, God told him, Fear not, for I have many people in this city. Uh, nobody had gotten saved yet. So God used election to motivate Paul to preach the gospel to Corinth. Uh, it didn't pop his tires. It motivated him. And if you look at the missions movement, you'll find that many of the early great missionaries uh, were reformed. They were they were Calvinists. Um, not, not necessarily probably what we would call hyper-Calvinists, uh, but they they believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in predestination, that God elected unto salvation, and that they were working with the Lord in their obedience to preach the gospel, and that these things uh, working together gave them the great motivation and confidence they needed to go into dark places and believe that God was with them and God was going to use them, and, and that there were many people in that country. There were many people in that city. So. Um, first disclaimer, we are not determinists or fatalists. The scriptures don't allow us to land there. The scriptures motivate us to obedience and action and faith and worship and lives of uh, love in action. And so because the scriptures don't allow us to land there, we cannot land there. Um, Secondly, I think one, when I would say hyper-Calvinism, or at least when I maybe used to say that or when others say that, I think there's also that, that, idea of the mean-spiritedness that has accompanied some of the reform movement that in some ways cannibalizes the rest of the body of Christ. In other words, it says, uh, look, we, we get it. You don't. We're saved. You're not. And let me just be very clear as we head into this discussion. These doctrines that we're going to discuss um, and this theological system uh, is not an issue of justification for you. Okay. In other words, there are some who teach that you have to believe the reform system in order to be saved, and that is to make it a Galatian circumcision and a Galatian heresy. We are saved by grace through faith. Uh, we believe that Arminians and Calvinists, all who believe in salvation by grace through faith, are in Christ and are saved, and we love the entire body of Christ. I'm a huge fan of George Whitfield, who in the Great Awakening period wanted to be owned by the reform movement, he said, no, I'm a servant to the whole body. And he worked a lot with John Wesley, who was an Arminian. And uh, they worked together in the harvest fields of the 18th century revival. So uh, disclaimers, these are not, uh, you know, believing in TULIP is not an issue of justification or salvation. Um, And we are not determinists or fatalists. Um, We believe in action. We believe in love. We believe in the human will uh, in its proper place in our theological understanding that God has given us freedom in our will, uh, and yet that freedom is not, uh, is not fragmented from God's sovereign will. And I think that's where I take an issue with uh, a lot of the way that Arminians think, is that there's some, this hard line between our will and God's will, that God is a gentleman and he won't cross that line. Well, then you've got a big problem with a lot of <laughs> scriptures. And by the way, why are you even praying and asking God to save anybody? Yeah. So <laughs> um, I think when it comes down to it, even Arminians don't believe that. They do, yeah. they do believe that God has power over the human will in some ways, uh, maybe not to the degree that a Calvinist would, but yeah. they do believe that. So um, these are good things to wrestle with. They're scriptural and they're helpful and they are, they are inspiring and motivating to those who uh, believe them.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, it's helpful for us to have these discussions in a way that maybe you can see uh, where we're coming from um, and, and, and maybe hear something you've never heard. Because if you've only heard the characters um, of, of these beliefs, then you probably have a pretty bad starting place. And I know that because that's where I started from. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know we're going to talk about some texts, but one that um, is helpful to me... Um, in In all of this, as a good starting place for me, and i I hope I'm not stealing one from you, but is is romans eight twenty eight through thirty uh, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, this is a helpful text for me. It shows the chain of The golden of salvation. chain of salvation. Um, and just a little clarity, that word for new uh, actually means uh, chosen. <laughs> so <laughs> just throw that one out there. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more later. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that one out
0: there. <laughs> yeah, uh, and actually, it, it, it literally means for loved.
1: <laughs> That's a good way to put and, and, it. <laughs> and it's the,
0: it's the kind of known, like, it, it carries the intimacy like the Old Testament would use, like Adam knew Eve. Um, so there's, a, there's, there's a, an intimacy there. There's an intimacy there in, in that foreknowledge. It's not just this bland academic foreknowledge. It, it actually, yeah. it, has a, it has a love motivation in it to, that, that creates Um. So anyway, um we're talking about total depravity today. Uh if we're using the acronym Tulip, the first one is T, it's total depravity. Um and the idea of total depravity, and I think maybe uh one of the common misconceptions about this is um people misinterpret that as as somehow that we're saying that you're you're utterly depraved. Uh you're 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 totally evil in every way. And the bottom line is Total depravity in the scriptures don't teach that we are as evil as we can be because of intervening grace, because we're made in the image of God and because God is in this world and there is common grace uh, and we, people that are in this world, are not damned to hell uh, yet. Um, So total depravity doesn't mean we're utterly depraved. It simply means that every facet of the the human condition is contaminated by sin. Uh, our emotions, our minds, our bodies, uh, our spirits. Um, uh, and it's the difference between being sick and being dead, right? Um, the, the idea of total depravity teaches that we are spiritually uh, dead, our spiritual faculties are dead, that without intervening grace, you can't want God. That what happened in the fall with Adam and Eve is exactly what God said would happen. And that is, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And we, we get you know the doctrine uh, of total depravity from scriptures like Romans 7, verse 18. Paul says, for I know, and he's convinced of this, he's not debating this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Okay, so he he's saying that in the sin nature there there is nothing good in that at all uh, mm-hmm. that can reach out for God that he's spiritually dead and you could put life serum right next to a corpse that corpse cannot grab the life serum yeah. that's all that's all the corpse needs is just to grab it and, and drink it and, and and they'll be okay but they cannot grab it because they're spiritually dead, dead. so they need the resurrection yeah. needs to happen uh, bef- before. The person can partake of that life serum.
1: I'll ask my my grace group, which meets on Tuesday nights, this question a lot. Uh, Anytime we come to a command in scripture, um, I'll ask them, you know, I'll I'll preface, Bible says we're dead in our trespasses. So, uh, when we see James tell the the people, um, don't be like the rich, um, how does a dead person do that? they can't why because they're dead and and and, and i think it's a helpful little thing that we do to constantly remind ourselves like even the commands that the bible gives us have to be understood from the context that we were dead in our trespasses and sin so therefore when we come to a command um maybe it's just like a command like um don't don't gossip don't gossip well how does a dead person not gossip right well they don't have the power to stop why because they're dead right it's, it's helpful.
0: Well, it's helpful, and, and honestly, my wife and I have talked about this a lot. You know, as we started, as we started uh, tracking with these doctrines, the more we grasp our depravity, the more beautiful the grace of God is. You know, there was this. I, I talked last Sunday about this, um, this group of religious progressives that wanted to change the lyrics to the song "Amazing Grace" uh, because of the word "wretch." And one person said something like, "I can't relate to that word. Hmm. I don't identify as a wretch." And my argument is the grace ain't amazing if the wretch ain't a wretch. And the more you understand the wretchedness of the human soul, uh, the more the cross looks beautiful. The cross looks stupid to somebody who thinks pretty highly of themselves. So the more you grasp sin and that we were so bad that the Son of God himself needed to come die for us, the more beautiful and meaningful and glorious the cross looks. So um, the idea of total depravity doesn't create inferiority in the Christian. It creates gratitude and worship. And matter of fact, I, I received a call years back, maybe 10 years ago, I received a call from a local businessman. And he said, uh, he attended a local church in the area. And he said, I know you're a grace guy. I said, well, I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> preach grace, if that's what you mean. He said, yeah. He said, I, I want to meet with you and just talk about grace. I said, okay. So I met with him over lunch. And he said, I really am having a hard time grasping grace. I, I hear it preached on, but I'm just, I'm not getting it. My heart's not getting it. It's not hitting me in a way that it's, it's affecting me deeply. He says, what's my problem? I said, well, let's start with this. I said, you're sick, twisted, and perverted without Christ. Do you believe that? He paused. He paused longer. <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, nobody, nobody talks to me like that. I said, the gospel does. I said, that's your problem. Until you realize that you are sick, twisted, and perverted, and depraved without Christ, that you that you have no faculty in yourself to pull yourself up out of your sinful condition, that only Jesus could do it, and he did it when he purchased yeah. souls on the cross. That means He he ransomed us. He literally bought people at the cross from the fires of hell. That Jesus did that. He reached for you when you couldn't reach for yourself. That grace is not for those who can, would, couldn't, did. It's for those who can't, wouldn't, couldn't, and didn't. I said, until you realize that, grace will look small to you. It'll be meh. You've got too big of a you in your theology and too small of a God in your theology. And I I shared that with him. I, I was pretty strong with him. He texted me later that day, maybe the next day, and he said, I can't believe it. He goes, I'm getting grace. He goes, it's because of what you said. Because the more I think about what you said, the more the cross looks awesome to me.
1: Yeah,
0: and he was having what my wife and I now call a depravity revival <laughs> that led to a grace revival. Yeah. So th- these these things are huge. Like this doctrine, if you believe this doctrine, it actually like shapes the rest of your theological it really journey. Does yeah. like the rest of the tulip? If you don't believe this one, then forget the rest of what we're going to talk about because the rest of the doctrines boot off of the assumption that. I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh.
1: Yeah, um, I like how I like how R.C. Sproul actually he kind of changes the acronym a little bit. So he calls total depravity uh, radical uh, radical corruption, um, and he says that it helps to illustrate that um, this corruption penetrates to the core or heart of who we are. It's not just a cursory or tangential problem with sin, but instead it's a sinfulness that reaches down. To the very center of who we are. So, like you're saying, like you've got to start from that point, because if at the very core of me, I'm okay, and I just struggle with sin, well, then I can overcome sin on my own. Right. I can't, because at the very core of me, I am corrupted with sinfulness. And I think that kind of goes back to what you had kind of briefly mentioned about utter depravity, total depravity. Um, you know, utter depravity saying that we are as depraved as we possibly could be, whereas total depravity teaches that the effects of the fall are so serious that they affect the whole person. Um, every part of us is tainted with sin. It's not that we're the most evil version of ourselves. Right. It's just that we are completely corrupted by sin.
0: When well, the objector says, well, I have good in me too, right? There's good... You're saying that there's good in me too, so why can't you acknowledge that good, that there is human good? And, that, and Jonathan Edwards' answer to that is, <laughs> he said, would you call a ship good that could make it halfway across the Atlantic? If it ends up at the bottom of the Atlantic, it is not a good ship. Yeah, He said, would you call a husband good who only had a mistress, who only had one mistress? Would you call a servant good who only slapped his master in the face several times? You know, so the, the point is well taken total depravity means look at the look at the nature of the capacity and the ability uh of the ship and you will find that uh, it is depraved yeah. its its final state is depravity because its its nature is yeah. depravity and and um you know i i I remember when I was studying reform theology, just realizing why have why have I defended this island of righteousness?
1: Yeah.
0: Or, or why have I built this fortress around the concept of free will that, that isn't even in scripture. The term free will is actually, it's not in scripture. Right. Right. So where does this come from and why am I defending it? And, and when, when I allowed my defenses to drop and I said, let's restart this, let's restart this conversation and let's look at the human will through the scriptural language. And let's look at righteousness through scriptural language. Um, you know, I, I, it forces you to part with your island of righteousness. Yeah. And it, listen, if you go to Scripture honestly, without a, without a bias, uh, and just let it speak to you and build your theology from scratch, there is no way you could walk away from Scripture defending your own righteousness and your morality, um, and um, you know somehow defending the the concept of of human will being ultimate yeah. uh, and somehow distinct from God's will. Um, Jonathan Edwards also described it this way, that we all have moral ability and natural ability, okay? So, natural ability is the ability to make choices. That's part of being made in the image of God. We receive that from the Lord. In the garden, Adam and Eve also had moral ability, and that's the ability to make the right choice. And the way Jonathan Edwards taught this particular doctrine was that in the fall, we didn't lose our natural ability— So we still have the ability to make choices. We still have a will, but we did die spiritually, which means we lost our ability to make the right choice. So we lost our moral ability. And some would say, well, unbelievers can make good choices. Well, it depends on what you mean by a good choice. The scripture defines a good choice as one that is motivated by the glory of God, that you're doing it. For love and worship and gratitude unto your Creator, and if you use that as a definition, then all have become corrupt. All your righteous deeds are like filthy yeah. rags because we, without Christ, we're incapable of wanting God or doing anything for the glory yeah. of God, which makes all deeds unrighteous. Which means, there you go—the t- the yeah. total depravity of man even corrupts a good, a good choice. Yeah, if you want to use that vocabulary, because the motive is corrupt.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just. Uh essentially paraphrase Romans 3, 10 and 11, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Whew. So, I mean, if, if you, let's just start at a place I think everybody who is a believer can agree on, whether you're on the side of Arminian or Calvinism, wh- wherever you are on this, we'll call it a spectrum, um, wherever you are on that spectrum, the Bible is God's word, right? We can agree to that. Well, what does the Bible tells, tell us? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. Um, but what else, about
0: all those seekers out there? People with hey, a good heart
1: that are really, truly seeking God. They don't God. exist. That's right. <laughs> now, you know, what I would say is there may be seekers, but really they are um, drawees. That, that's probably a weird word, because it's yeah. not a word. They are people that the Holy Spirit is drawing. Yeah. So, they are people who God is already working on. Right. So, they're not naturally seeking out of their own their own will. Yeah. If you, if you want God, it's because God's already at work yeah. in you. And, uh, you know, I mean, the Bible is pretty clear. I mean, very, very, very clear. We are sinners. I mean, we're born sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, 1 Kings 8.46, there is no man who does not sin.
0: Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately sick, Yeah, beyond understanding who can know it.
1: And, and I think, honestly, even in terms of the conversation of uh, total depravity, you'll find a lot of common ground with people um, who are outside the Calvinist camp. Um, they'll, they'll say, yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the implications of it that matter so much. Um, where this Doctrine leads you, shows what side of this you fall on. I personally, you know, in in the churches that I've been a part of, I've actually heard a good bit about the sinful nature. Mm-hmm. I grew up with that language, at least, um, at least since the early two thousands. And so that language is very familiar to me and very doctrinally accurate. You know, we are we have this sinful nature. Well, if I am honest about the sin nature and its effects in my life before. Um, salvation, it means that I have an inner bent towards sin, means that is what I choose. So, you could say that, yes, I do have free will, but without that moral ability that you mentioned just a moment ago, what is it that I'm always going to choose? Well, it's going to be to choose my master, and my master is sin. So, I am always, every single time, going to choose sin. Or you'll have a sinful motivation. Yeah, yeah. even my good things. I mean, again... uh, (laughs) The Bible says that our, our good things, our, uh, our righteous works, are filthy rags. Yeah, I'll say it this way. Total depravity
0: teaches that without grace, you will reject God 10 out of 10 times. So you have a free will, right? Yeah. You have a will. You're, you're choosing it, right? You're responsible yeah. for your choices. But unfortunately, one of those choices is not salvation. Yeah faith in Christ because of the death of our moral ability at the fall, we're incapable of choosing that. So you'll, you'll reject God a hundred out of a hundred times, a thousand out of a thousand times because that is your nature, the yeah. sin nature. That's why Peter says, through these great and precious promises, we've become partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. So what the divine nature is, is it's God's Holy Spirit who God chooses God, God produces God. And when God's grace is on a person... It overcomes that sinful nature and, and and gives us a desire for God. And so, you know, somebody might say, well, can't, doesn't the Bible say we can resist God? Can't we reject God? It, don't we have real choices? Yes, but the Bible also teaches that you will resist God until God resists your resistance. <laughs> when God resists your resistance, Proverbs 21, 1, bro, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it like water where he wishes. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's indefensible from yeah. a scriptural perspective. I think the only arguments you can bring against uh, the idea of total depravity are it's carnal reasoning uh, at the end of the day. But if, if you use scripture, um, I think you have to conclude that we're spiritually dead and that we need intervening grace. And let me mention something, by the way, on that. Even early Arminians, you pointed out that um, Jacobus Arminius Uh, I don't know if you pointed out or I read it. He actually still held to the Heidelberg Catechism uh, until his death. Why am I mentioning that? Well, because even the early Arminians believed in what they called prevenient grace, that before a man could be saved, God had to intervene sovereignly and and, uh, supernaturally. So God was still... um, God's supernatural power was still necessary in salvation. I guess the the Calvinists would say that they were spiritually dead, and if God wakes them up, that 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 spiritual nature that's at work in the person will inevitably bring them to Christ. The Arminian would say that they're spiritually sick, and God supernaturally helped them to wake up so they could make the right decision. Um, some would say that's semantics, but if you're— Using scriptural language, I, I I can't see it that way, um, but my point is that even like historic Armenians had a higher view of God's sovereignty, His supernatural power, and His grace than a lot of modern day Armenians who think who, who actually would maybe uh, criticize an early Armenian for their high view of God's sovereignty. So uh, you know, one of my concerns is that modern Armenians, um, it really the, there's a danger of legalism built into the theological yeah. assumptions because of that uh island of righteousness that the person claims they have that needs to reach out for god on their own without inter-
1: intervening grace yeah i i will say too like as as i began to study these things i i guess uh the the ignorance that i had with it i didn't even realize the beliefs that i was claiming to have um, so, if you are listening to this and you maybe would consider yourself to be Armenian, <laughs> please take a look at what even those beliefs are, because I actually realized I was more of a semi-Pelagian
0: that, exactly
1: than I was Armenian yeah. in, my, in my framework theologically, and there is a reason why that's important, because Pelagian was a heretic, yeah. and what he taught was that uh, he taught free will, um, and he was at the time of Augustine. And, and so, early church, um, he taught that not only did you have free will, um, but you had the ability to decisively um, have that impulse to make a decision to be saved that actually could by- bypass the work of the cross. So, the, the work of Jesus Christ at the cross was not necessary for salvation. Um, he was deemed a heretic.
0: Basically, that you're inherently good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, essentially, he denied total depravity to the point where, uh, you were utterly good. Um, sin entered in with bad choices. So he didn't believe in original sin. Sin wasn't passed down from Adam, which the Bible teaches. Um, he didn't believe, um... That we were born with that condition, and so, therefore, we had that moral ability to choose right and wrong, and so, therefore, to be saved was as simple as a decision. And so, semi-Pelagianism takes some of that. Obviously, it, it denies a lot of that. It denies the denial the, of the cross. The Reformers
0: actually referred to uh, the Armenians of their day as semi-Pelagians. Yeah. So I, Many of them did, at least.
1: I tend to think that a lot of what is considered Arminianism, or Armin, whatever, um, or even just the thought of free free willists um, is free willies. Free, <laughs> the free movie. willies come and get a Free willie. <laughs> Chanel loved that movie. <laughs> um, she, we, we, we look at that and we go, oh, they're just a bunch of Arminians. but no, they're they're actually semi pelagians They they. Um, it 's nuanced, but I think it is important to understand the terms
0: yeah and, and let 's be gracious right yeah. like um, we we have to We have to be gracious to where people are on their journey, and uh, until we 're confronted with some of these truths uh it 's unfair to simply yeah. group people you know in with really the legalists or yeah. the bad guys or the false teachers that that 's not really accurate. Uh, an accurate way of seeing it. Yeah. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, and there are many, there are many, many, many Arminians who are saved and are, are, yeah. are going to heaven, and, and there's a difference between denying Scripture and trying to understand Scripture.
1: Yeah, yeah so let me add that ca- caveat. You know, wh- I did not mean to imply to anyone who falls along those lines that you're not saved or that you are actively denying the cross. I, I know many people who have opposing views uh, uh, to my own, and they love the Lord. They're, they're believers, and they... The gospel is believed by them, and mm-hmm. I see them loving people with the love of Christ. So, please understand that I'm not saying that you're not saved by any means. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I
0: wasn't hearing that, but I did want to clarify that uh, to anybody listening that so that you, you do hear the grace. I mean, these are the doctrines of grace, and we have we have grace in that. Um, maybe I'll finish with a quote of the day yeah. uh, from uh, Charles Spurgeon. And remember, we we talked about how one of the synonyms for. Uh, reformed theology is big God theology. And why is that important? Well, listen to what Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said. You are not mature if you have a high esteem of yourself. He who boasts in himself is but a babe in Christ, if indeed he be in Christ at all. Young Christians may think much of themselves. Growing Christians think themselves nothing. Mature Christians know that they are less than nothing. The more holy we are, The more we mourn, our infirmities, and the humbler is our estimate of ourselves. Amen. Amen. So thanks for listening today. Uh, Let me pray that God would just guide us in these things. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, help our hearts to grasp uh, the depths, uh, the magnitude, the scope, the weight of sin on one hand, but on the other hand, uh, the depth, the scope, the magnitude of God's love in the cross uh, because you came in spite of that sin uh, and to defeat the power of that sin. We thank you, Lord, that it is true that we're more wicked than we ever, we're more wicked than we ever dared believe we're more loved than we ever dared hope at the very same time and we thank you for that. So bless our hearers today we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. till next time Jesus is enough.